Welcome to AUSA's Army Matters Podcast, focusing on what's important to the total Army community. We bring vital Army conversations and interviews on issues relevant to soldiers, military families, and all of you amazing Army supporters. Rotating each week, our show includes Soldier Today, Leading Great Teams, Family Voices, and Thought Leaders. Let's tune into the show. Welcome to AUSA's Army Matters Podcast. This is Thought Leaders with Joe Craig. My guest today is Robert Child, author of Immortal Valor, the Black Medal of Honor winners of World War II. Robert Child's a military history writer and director. In addition to The Lost Eleven, the forgotten story of black American soldiers brutally massacred in World War II, which he co-authored with Janice George, he's published nine other nonfiction military history titles and military thrillers over the last eight years. Robert has garnered more than 26 writing and directing awards, including an Emmy nomination, and he's one of only a handful of writer-directors whose work has been screened in the United States Congress. He lives in Atlanta, Georgia. So, Robert, welcome to the podcast. Well, thanks for having me, Joe. Appreciate it. So, Robert, your book profiles seven African-Americans who received the Medal of Honor for their actions during World War II. Just to set the stage, can you tell us why the book focuses specifically on these seven men? Well, uh, obviously, because they were the recipients of the Medal of Honor, and the number of African-Americans in World War II was much, much higher, obviously, and there was more than a million black Americans in uniform in World War II. So to award seven the Medal of Honor is a very, very small percentage. Right, and until the 1990s, we saw that I think it was over 400 had received about zero African-Americans. It's long overdue, and it's a story we'll get into over the course of our discussion here. One common theme that I noticed among these men is that they all wanted to serve. So, for example, you relate how John Fox transferred out of Ohio State University to join an ROTC program. Yeah, well, John Fox is from Ohio, and he did enter Ohio State, but he felt like his destiny was a career in the military. And not many people chose the military as a career at that time. So he chose Wilberforce University to go into their ROTC program. And there were only two universities at the time that offered ROTC to black Americans, and Wilberforce was one of them. John Fox became part of the 366th Infantry that was based at Air, Massachusetts, and he commanded a cannon company. He rose to the rank of first lieutenant and went over to Italy with his unit and fought on the Gothic line, which was Hitler's sort of line in the sand in northern Italy. And he, as I said, commanded a cannon company, and he served as a Ford observer over Christmas, 1944. He volunteered for Christmas duty for four days at a mountaintop town called Soma Colonia, which was a tiny rural town in essentially Tuscany, you know, bucolic, picturesque, but surrounded by Germans. And the town was quiet up until Christmas time, but the Allies expected an attack in the area. They didn't know it was going to be on that town, but they expected an attack somewhere along the line. And he happened to be the forward observer over Christmas in a tower in the town. And about 4.30 that morning of the 26th of December 1944, the town was attacked. It got to a point where they were overwhelmed. He had no choice but to call in artillery strikes on the town. And he called into fire control, and he said, you have to fire in my position. There's more of them than there are of us. And at first, his chain of command questioned his request. And they said, are you sure? He said, yes, you have to fire it. We're being overrun. And they found his body a few days later, and that's essentially his story. 
So throughout the book, I mean, the challenges these men face, you know, are incredible. They all come across instances of racism and discrimination. Even the physical conditions can be quite daunting. I mean, I'm thinking of the descriptions you have of Camp Claiborne, for example. Would you share some of those with our audience? Yeah, Camp Claiborne was outside of Alexandria, Louisiana, and it was a modern camp that the 101st Airborne first started, subsequently the 82nd. But the black soldiers were not part of the modern camp. They were pushed way back in the back, more than a mile away from the gate, in former swampland, which was, you know, mosquito-ridden and right next to a sewage treatment plant. So they were given the worst terrain possible where they had to train. It was the 761st Tank Battalion and the 758th Tank Battalion that trained there. Yeah, and relations with the uh, nearby town of Alexandria were not so great, right? No, they weren't, because before those tank battalions began, there was a race riot in January 1942 between black and white soldiers. It's called the Lee Street Riots, and it really left you know, raw nerves in the town. The men, they got to a point where they wouldn't even bother venturing into the town. They felt they were so unwelcome. Right. Well, you know, one of the early efforts that the Army made to address situations like this was expansion of training for African-American officers. So how were men like Vernon Baker selected for that program? There was a push in 1942 to secure more black officers. And Vernon Baker was serving as a supply sergeant at Fort Huachuca. And he was completely satisfied in that role, and he felt like he was doing a good job. But his commander recognized that he had leadership quality. So his commander filled out a, <laughs> an OCS application for him, and he presented it to him for his signature. And Vernon was taken aback. He didn't really know what he was signing at the time. He thought he was in trouble for something, and it turns out he was signing on to attend OCS. And he did in Fort Benning, Georgia and graduated as a second lieutenant and became part of the 92nd Division in Italy as a de facto company commander. Well, bringing African-Americans like Baker into officer candidate school was an important step, but the numbers were obviously small in comparison with the size of the overall army. So how did the bulk of African-American enlisted men, men like Willie James Jr., how did they get into the fight? Well, Willie James was part of a service battalion, and in late 1944, after the Battle of the Bulge, Eisenhower, with so many wounded and killed in rifle companies after the Battle of the Bulge, realized that they needed to fill ranks in the rifle companies. So he put together a request in a letter to black servicemen in service units. He said, the privilege to join our men in the infantry ranks. It was a call that went out to black soldiers. And they didn't expect the numbers that applied. Close to 5,000 black soldiers applied, and they really only had positions for 2,500 at the time in January of 1945. Mm -hmm. So they had to cut it off at around 2,300, and a little less than 2,300 subsequently went through the training in France and became part of what they called the 5th Platoon, which was a 5th Rifle Company as part of white units on the front lines. Well, you know, the stories of all the men in the book are remarkable. There's one whose life story seems like it was written for the silver screen. Would you tell our audience about Edward Carter? <laughs> yes. <laughs> Everyone asks about Edward Carter, and I agree with you. His father and mother were missionaries. His mother was uh, Anglo-Indian, 
and they lived in Calcutta for a short time, but moved to Shanghai. And he grew up in Shanghai in the early part of the 20th century. His father was very domineering, and he was always looking to sort of get out from underneath his thumb. And in 1936, the Japanese attacked where he lived in an international settlement in Shanghai. And he took this as an opportunity to escape from his father's grasp, and he joined the Chinese 19th Army and fought on the side of the Chinese at age 15 against the invading Japanese. And that began his military career. Mm -hmm. He was pulled out of the army by his father because he was too young, but subsequently he joined the Merchant Marines and then went on to fight with the Abraham Lincoln Brigade in the Spanish Civil War before returning to the States, and then joined the army in 1942 at Fort Benning when World War II broke out. So he had years of combat experience before he even entered the army. And unfortunately, they put him in a quartermaster company where he pushed him up. He didn't carry a rifle. And he was very disheartened by that, but he kept his mouth shut in training. And he's another soldier who took advantage of the letter I just mentioned, the request from Eisenhower to train for a rifle company. And he joined a rifle company in the 12th Division, Patton's Mystery Division, mm -hmm. and performed heroically. I don't want to give the end of his story away, but his backstory does make a motion picture. Right. Well, you know, we can certainly leave a little bit of mystery in terms of what happens for his actions that are recognized. But it is remarkable how some of the skills he acquired, namely like the language skills that people didn't even know he had, come into play yeah. as well. Yeah, I can mention that part of what he did to receive the Medal of Honor. When he attended the Shanghai Military Academy, he learned four different languages, and one of them was German. In his action to take out a German position while he was on patrol, he actually captured two Germans. He was wounded himself with nine bullet holes, and he brought back two prisoners, and his commander wanted to rush him off, evacuate him to be stitched up. But he said, we've got to interrogate these guys and figure out what they know. And then he started speaking German to them, <laughs> and mm -hmm. no one knew that he spoke German. So he was able to interrogate these two German prisoners that he captured, and they right. gave him the patrol information, and they were able to proceed safely into unscouted territory. Right. Fortunately, Carter was able to survive the war. Unfortunately, you know, over half the men you profile were killed in action. For those like Carter who did make it to the post-war world, you know, what was it like for those who did get there? Well. Nothing much had changed, unfortunately, from prior to their entering service in World War II. Carter, for one, was very frustrated, and he dealt with discrimination. He tried to enter civilian life. He applied for a VA loan for a painting company he wanted to start, was denied for that, and he was getting nowhere in civilian life, so he rejoined the military and served as an advisor at California National Guard, then went up to Fort Lewis, Washington. But at the time, because we were entering Cold War period in the late 40s, early 50s, he didn't know he was under surveillance because of his service in the Spanish Civil War, where he served, unfortunately, on the side of the communists. He wasn't a communist, but they labeled him a communist. And in 1949, they denied his reenlistment in the service. Have you purchased your AUSA swag yet? Be proud to show your support for AUSA, which in turn shows your support for the U.S. Army and our soldiers. Check out all AUSA swag at shop.ausa.org. So, obviously, he didn't get justice there. 
he and, and his fellow servicemen never got recognition for their actions with the Medal of Honor. So how did this eventually get fixed? How did the Army eventually recognize the soldiers for what they did? It was sort of a, a domino effect. In the late 80s, early 90s, there was a researcher, Harden Hargrove, who was researching the story of a World War I soldier who had not received a deserved Medal of Honor. No black soldiers from World War I at that time had received the Medal of Honor. So he was able to investigate this black soldier's case, I believe it was Freddie Stowers, and he presented his findings to the military, and they agreed with him, and they awarded him the Medal of Honor in 1991. And this became a catalyst for the military and some senators who were interested in this case to question why no black soldiers had received the award for World War II. A Defense Department study was commissioned at Shaw University in Raleigh, North Carolina, which is a historically black college. And they began the study in 1993, took three years, and they came up with nine candidates who they forwarded to the Army who were Distinguished Service Cross recipients. One of them was a Silver Star recipient, Reuben Rivers, and they forwarded their names to the Army for consideration of the Medal of Honor. And that's how the seven men were selected. Right. Now, you mentioned that Aileen Carter, her efforts on behalf of her father-in-law, Edward Carter, they didn't stop with the Medal of Honor. They, they continued on, along with some help from some high-profile folks. Can you just tell us a little bit about that? Sure. Aileen Carter is a powerhouse of a woman. I'm, I, I dealt with her on the book. She's a wonderful woman. She's a former union activist, and she doesn't take no for an answer. So when her family was alerted that Eddie Edward Carter, her father-in-law, was being awarded the Medal of Honor, she questioned it, and she said, you know, what took so long? And well, I'm going to look into this. So she started looking into it. She discovered that he had been labeled a communist, and there had been that problem. So she went on a quest to clear his name. First, she requested the Army reinter him at Arlington because she felt he was due a full military ceremony burial at Arlington because of earning the Medal of Honor. And they agreed to that. But they also agreed that he deserved an apology because he should have been allowed to reenlist in 1949. Because so she said, well, that's great, you know. And they said, yeah, we'll send a letter of apology. And she said, no, I don't, <laughs> I don't accept that. I want a public apology. So she pressed the Pentagon to make a public apology, which they did. And they said, well, we'll schedule it sometime. And they said, no, why don't you schedule it on Veterans Day? <laughs> so they did, actually the day before Veterans Day, November 10, 1999. And in a public ceremony in the Hall of Heroes, they made a public apology to Edward Carter, reinstated medals that he was denied, awarded him medals that they didn't even know that he had earned, and apologized for their treatment of him, and also eliminated the wording and the language and allowed his reenlistment to move forward. So it was an amazing end to his story, and she made it happen. Absolutely, and certainly media attention brought about by Joe Galloway's articles on the subject must have helped as well. Uh, Joe Galloway just passed away, and he was pivotal in the process. So definitely we want to mention him. Right. And just to wrap up the conversation, you know, at the end of the book, you note that there are some active petitions to recognize two more World War II servicemen. So to close this out, can you tell us about those two? Sure, absolutely. There are two black service members that are also under consideration for the Medal of Honor. One is Waverly Woodson. 
There are two online petitions for him and another soldier. He served in the 320th Barrage Balloon Battalion and landed on D-Day and served as a medic to wounded soldiers for 30 hours. He stitched up soldiers' wounds. He amputated a foot. He helped soldiers in from the water who were drowning. He worked around the clock 30 hours acting as a medic, and he finally collapsed from exhaustion. And he was awarded the Bronze Star. There's a petition on now put up by the family which you can find online, to award him the Medal of Honor. The second soldier is Dory Miller, who served in the Pacific during the Pearl Harbor attack on the West Virginia. And Dory Miller worked in the kitchen in the ship. And during the attack, he helped carry off wounded men, including the captain of the ship, and their 50 caliber gun was unmanned because some men were wounded and it was chaos. So he jumped on the 50 caliber gun, and it's estimated he took out three to four Japanese zeros at the time. For his actions, he was awarded the Navy Cross by Admiral Nimitz, but there's a petition right now to award him the Medal of Honor. And what I always remark that's ironic is the captain who he carried off, mortally wounded, was awarded the Medal of Honor, but Dory Miller wasn't. So there's an online petition to award him the Medal of Honor as well. More amazing stories of justice long delayed. So thank you again, Robert, for being our guest today. Thank you. Again, our guest was Robert Child, and his new book is Immortal Valor, the Black Medal of Honor winners of World War II. To all our listeners, thanks for joining us. Be sure to subscribe to the Army Matters podcast on iTunes and everywhere podcasts are found. The Army Matters podcast series is brought to you by the Association of the United States Army. The U.S. Army's Professional Association, member-supported, Army-connected. Visit us at AUSA.org for more information or to become a member. Your membership helps AUSA continue to carry out its mission to educate, inform, and connect with the total Army, our industry partners, and our supporters of a strong national defense. For questions or to provide topic recommendations, email us at podcast at AUSA.org. Have a great Army day. Hua.